Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. May is Mental Health Month, and while I often focus on physical mental health activities and the benefits of interactions in the physical and natural world, which are obviously important, this month, this May, I've been focusing on positive habits that are more cerebral, the mental part of the mental health improvement process. And one of my most positive mental health practices is my daily reading. I usually read two or three times a day for short time periods, then have one longer reading session right before bed. And I know from experience that reading before bed calms my mind, that it clears the effects of blue light from my computer and the other screens, It gives me a Pavlovian signal that sleep is coming next. But I knew that there were other benefits of reading as far as mental health goes, so I geeked out a little bit this week on reading and its benefits, and here's what I found. Reading articles from the National Alliance on Mental Illness and also from the journal Psychology Today, I found these interesting facts. First, reading reduces stress. Reading can even relax your body by lowering your heart rate and easing the tension in your muscles. A 2009 study at the University of Sussex found that reading can reduce stress by up to 68%. Reading provides us with a healthy escape. Reading takes us out of our world and our minds and into another world inside the pages of a book. With a film or a TV show, you're given the visuals, whereas with a book, You're inventing the visuals yourself. So it's actually much more of a powerful event because you're involved in creation. Reading can make us more understanding. Researchers at the New School in New York City have found evidence that literary fiction improves a reader's capacity to understand what others are thinking and feeling. Another study drew a strong connection between reading fiction and better performance on widely used empathy and social acumen tests. Reading also gives us an opportunity to identify with others in similar circumstances. When we read about others with similar experiences, basically, we feel less alone. And I found this in the journal Science on specific reading habits. Theory of mind is the human capacity to comprehend that other people hold beliefs and desires and that these may differ from one's own beliefs and desires. The currently predominant view is that literary fiction, often described as narratives that focus on in-depth portrayals of subjects' inner feelings and thoughts, can be linked to theory of mind processes, especially those that are involved in the understanding or simulation of the affective characteristics of the subjects. Understanding others' mental states is a crucial skill that enables the complex social relationships that characterize human societies. So, to put it more simply, reading helps you build and maintain complex social relationships. Finally, I found this simple list on reading from Healthline. It's titled, How Books Can Positively Affect Your Life. Reading strengthens the brain. It increases empathy. It builds vocabulary. It prevents cognitive decline. It reduces stress. It aids sleep. It alleviates depression. It lengthens lifespan. So in today's podcast episode, episode 29, I'm going to read a few of the most thought-provoking, interesting, 
and entertaining short pieces I've found lately and also include one of my own poems. So, here is episode 29. I've been reading a lot of Natalie Diaz lately. Read her whole collection post-colonial love poem, which won the Pulitzer Prize. She's an incredible human, a renaissance human. It was a high school basketball star, then took a full ride to Old Dominion, played four years as a point guard, played professional basketball afterwards, then got an MFA in poetry, became a stunning and stellar poet. And later, won a MacArthur Grant, the Genius Award. So many of Natalie's poems just stop me. So I'm going to read one here. Ode to the Beloved's Hips. Bells are they, shaped on the eighth day. Silvered percussion in the morning, are the morning. Swing, switch, sway. Hold the day away, a little longer, a little slower, a little easy. Call to me, I want to rock. I, I want to rock. I, I want to rock right now. So to them I come, struck dumb, chime blind, tolling with a throat full of Hosanna. How many hours bowed against this infinity of blessed trinity, communion of pelvis, sacrum, femur, my mouth, terrible angel, everlasting novena, ecstatic devourer. Oh, the places I have laid them, knelt and scooped the amber, fast honey, from their openness. Ah, muse in cabs, hidden temple of Tulum. Lick smooth the sticky of her hip, heat thrummed Osakoxe, lambent slave to Ilium and Ischium. I never tire to shake this wild hive, split with thumb the sweet-dripped comb, hot hexagonal hole, dark diamond, to its nectar dervish queen. Mine had tongue, come drunk, come tranced honey puller for her hips. I am strum song and succubus. They are the sign, hip, and the cosine, a great book. The body's Bible opened up to its good news gospel. Alleluias, Ave Marias, Madre Mias, Ay Ay Ay's, Ay Dios Mios, and Hip Hip Hooray. Cult of Cossacks, Culto de Cadera, Oracle of Orgasm, Rorschach's Riddle, What Do I See? Hips. Inominent bone, wishbone, Orpheus bone, transubstantiation bone, hips of bread, wine wet thighs, say the word and healed I shall be, bone butterfly, bone wings, bone ferris wheel. Bone basin, bone throne, bone lamp, apparition in the bone grotto, sixth mystery, slick rosary bead. Deme la gracia of a decade in this garden of carmine flora. Exile me to the enormous orchard of Alcinus, spice fruit laden tree, imparadise me, because, God, I am guilty. I am sin frenzied and full of teeth, for pear upon apple upon fig. More than all that are your hips. They are a city, they are a kingdom. Troy, the hollowed horse, 
an army of desire, 30 soldiers in the belly, two in the mouth. Beloved, your hips are the war. At night, your legs, love, are boulevards leading me beggared and hungry to your candy house, your Baroque mansion. Even when I am late and the tables have been cleared in the kitchen of your hips, let me eat cake. Oh, constellation of pelvic glide, every curve a luster, a star. More infinite still, your hips are cosmic, our universe, galactic carousel of burning comets and big, big bangs. Millennium Falcon, let me be your solo. Oh, hot planet, let me circumambulate. Oh, spiral galaxy, I'm coming for your dark matter. Along las calles de tus muslos, I wander, follow the parade of pulse like a drum line, descend into your plaza de toros, hands throbbing mirabulls, dark isleros, your arch tips, Aimi Torrera, down the long corridor, your wet walls lead me like a traje de luces, all glittered, glowed. I am the animal born to rush your rich red muletas. Each breath, each sigh, each groan, a hooked horn of want. My mouth at your inner thigh. Here I must enter you, mi pobre manolete. Press and part you like a wound. Make the crowd pounding in the grandstand of your iliac crest rise up in you and cheer. And if you're reading a lot of poetry, sometimes you just start writing poetry. This is my most recent poem. I wrote it yesterday. It's titled, Returning to the Bear. The last California grizzly was shot and killed in 1922 Fresno County. This bear hunted to protect cattle, but I hunt like the bear. Head down tracing your trail pausing to pursue, a shoulder where I'll place my teeth, the tip of a claw scraping your collarbone, my hunger in the meat of your hair. From 1922 to 1924, people reported seeing one final grizzly in Sequoia National Park before it vanished, scientists saying all caniformia smell in time, clocking the dissipating sense to register lapse. So I smell for you, losses in the seconds and days before a world can be regained, rejoining the Oligocene when tropical North America had 1,000-pound bear dogs, heavy, thick-headed, full jaws, myself. And now three canines in my home, four if you count me, none of us extinct. I put my nose to the window, alert and vigilant. Sweating omnivorous tendencies, these longings for your advent in the verdant, this venery, undergrowth, a tangled relapse, hoping for a twinning restoration. But your mentally healthy practice of reading and writing doesn't have to be about poetry or poems. 
It could just be about entertainment, which is also really healthy and good for your brain. For example, this essay by Brendan Leonard was just straight entertaining to me this week. But it also made me think. It's titled, Bears Don't Care About Your Problems. Bears don't care about your problems. Call your mom, tell your Twitter followers, or take a Sharpie and write them on the wall of a public restroom if you must, but bears certainly don't give a shit. Bears do not care how many likes your bikini selfie got on Instagram today. Bears do not care if the grocery store was out of your favorite almond milk. Even if you have slight anxiety because you haven't mowed your lawn in a while and it's more than ankle high, bears could not care less. Did you drop your phone and crack the screen? I know. Again? Don't go looking for a bear to commiserate with you. Bears don't have phones. Or sympathy for humans who can't take care of nice things, like the $700 computers we keep in our pockets, or set on the table while having a lunch with a friend because we now have the attention span of a goldfish. Bears do not care if you are not feeling motivated or if you aren't happy at your job, or if you are just so busy all the time. Bears are busy too, busy spending zero time wondering how you're doing out there in the non-wilderness parts of the world, and instead focusing on their own survival, which is a little less trivial than the stuff you've been complaining about. Like you, bears have not been putting much money in their 401k, but bears don't have 401ks or any sort of money system. Or retirement. Bears don't want to hear about your new diet, what you're avoiding eating, or what you're only eating now, or how it makes you feel or not feel. You can eat rocks and die for all bears care. Bears are eating everything they goddamn can right now. And by the way, don't you think they're looking a bit more athletic compared to last summer? Just kidding. When it comes to fucks bears give about what you think, the official total is zero. Bears are not arguing about politics with their uncles at awkward family get-togethers on Facebook or anywhere. Bears are not sitting in a Starbucks with their friend Christy telling her about what that toxic bitch Kim said to Jen about them last week, even though they hate drama and the only reason they're telling Christy is because she doesn't see Kim for who she is. Bears don't worry about gossip. Bears can run 30 miles per hour though, which is faster than Usain Bolt for the record. Bears are out there doing their shit, being, quote, in the moment, like we all talk about wishing we did a better job of. Bears are not meditating and trying to find their center. They are trying to find food, keeping track of their kids, and occasionally destroying other species that fuck with them. Then they sleep. Bears do not have time for your shit. Bears are, however, very interested in the food you bring into their habitat and do not have very good manners or really any perception of property rights. So if you're backpacking or camping in bear country this summer, make sure you use a bear canister or properly hang your food from a tree before you go to sleep at night. A healthy mind is an engaged mind, a curious mind an active mind. And I was thinking about this because I spend so much time in a semi-comatose state, just kind of mindlessly wending down rabbit holes on the internet, clicking page to page to page, not really learning much of anything often, which reminded me of Zadie Smith's essays in Feel Free. 
She wrote an essay titled The Tattered Ruins of the Map on Sarah Z's Centrifuge. And Centrifuge is an interesting art installation by the New York artists. It's a site-specific installation in the middle hall of the Haus der Kunst in Munich. And the piece commences from a fixed point and dynamically morphs outward into the surrounding space, shifting in scale and density. And what Z's doing is making physical the internal workings of her phone and the internet. So she takes images and places these images and shelves these objects and materials, things like mirrors, wood, salt, bamboo, stainless steel, um, to project a series of sculptural groupings. I mean, I don't really know exactly how to explain this. But Smith writes, Walking into Z's studio with a gaggle of children provided a telling contrast. They found nothing peculiar in this centrifuge, constructed from thin bamboo sticks, upon which hang slices of reality, cinema, recorded, repurposed, and projected onto little scraps of dangling paper, themselves held in place with bulldog clips and tape, like a homemade image search engine. My sense was that it was a centrifuge. It appeared to be broken. The circular structure only three-quarters closed like a half-ruined amphitheater, damaged in some seismic event. But to the children, it was almost familiar, simply a sort of exploded iPhone with all the technology deconstructed and the liberated images floating free in the world. Sadie Smith's writing on this installation made me think of a lot of things. Later in the essay, Smith writes, Z takes the type of images we store in our personal hardware and projects them outwards, remaking them as apparently independent objects in the world and refitting them with a sense, however partial, of actuality and authenticity. On the surrounding walls, for example, projections of animals run each at their own speed, but Z has mapped their relative speeds so that the difference between the bird and the big cat as they race around the room is as it would be in reality. Aligning recorded images to present time is one way of tethering the symbolic order more firmly to the real. This is a sense rarely available to the millions of us who now spend the larger part of our lives in the consideration and curation of digital simulacra, roving around the world without so much as leaving our chairs. Every kind of image is available to us, random, chosen, local, global, microscopic, immeasurable, personal, political, sacred, pornographic, iconic, anonymous. And after the workday is over, the process seamlessly continues thanks to the miniature computer slash phone slash camera in our pockets. In this life, the material world becomes peripheral, although it continues to exist, dragging itself slowly behind us like uncoiled viscera, often unpleasant and inconvenient, yet apparently still necessary. How tiresome is it to eat and drink and dress and move one's body and take a shit. But all of these things must be done. And around Z's desk, the abject evidence of bodily existence lingers, the remnants and effluvia of the non-virtual world. Toilet paper, milk cartons, 
many empty food boxes, pot plants, packaging from Amazon, a tower of tatty books. On top of which pile, there sits the collected fictions of Jorge Luis Borges. And inside that, you'll find Borges' famous one-paragraph tale on exactitude and science, which tells of a map of the empire whose size was that of the empire and which coincided point for point with it. In Borges' fable, the ingenious map eventually falls out of favor as it happens that following generations are not so fond of the study of cartography. They neglect the map, considering it useless, and so it is left to rot, although by some desperate folk it is repurposed. In the deserts of the West still today there are tattered ruins of that map, inhabited by animals and beggars. It was this uh, Borgesian sketch that was famously repurposed by the philosopher Jean Bouillard in his Simulacre et Simulation, a book that transforms allegory into theory while reversing the moral of the tale. In Baudrillard's vision of post-modernity, it is reality that has become a kind of tattered ruin, a desert. It is the map itself upon which we all now seamlessly live. How can this simulation we live within be made truly visible to us? Perhaps only a total rupture could affect it. In the ruins of a catastrophic event, we can imagine an inspired, practically-minded artisan undertaking the construction of something like centrifuge. She would be someone who recalls the simulation and believes she can recreate it piece by piece with the materials available, with whatever is to hand. But how could you reboot using only what was left? Unwieldy, ugly, heavy, noisy white projectors might do the trick, casting their various simulations onto those barely there screens and further abroad to the containing space. Although this stream of images is sometimes interrupted with the message, now loading, the digital equivalent of TV snow, which zips around Z's studio walls like a shadow, like a ghost. Now loading the world and everything in it, or might it not be the work of a figure like the Unabomber, who turns from technology in favor of the quote-unquote natural, of the quote-unquote real, but is simultaneously forced to recreate out in the woods at least some of its systems, bomb-making, for example, computer viruses, precisely to communicate his rejection? Centrifuge comes back to us from the future with a memory of how we once lived. Consider the Colosseum in Rome, in whose image centrifuge is built. It is a model of the repurposed image factory and an object lesson in the desertification of the real. Once, the Colosseum was a place of performance in which faithful copies of the world, sea battles, and dramatic reenactments and combats between men and beast were performed. Now, though, the Colosseum is the distant and somewhat unconvincing original source of an infinite series of postcards, tea cozies, snow globes, and so on, a place where Romanian migrants dressed as centurions charge tourists for selfies in front of a crumbling edifice they know only from the movie Gladiator. And just like all those little Colosseums you can buy within the Colosseum, Centrifuge contains a little version of itself in its left-hand corner, a coliseum within a coliseum. Oh. 
This episode is dedicated to my favorite reading spots. My orange sleeping bag, under the stars, anywhere in open space. Boyd Cave in Central Oregon. Alder Springs Canyon along Weiches Creek. My hammock hanging under the hazelnut tree in the backyard. All of my favorite city parks. Anywhere I'm reading barefoot. Also, thank you to the Willamette River on the north bank across from the islands on sunny days in fall or winter or spring or summer. Also, I want to dedicate this episode to all of you listeners. Thank you for going through my readings with me. If you have a moment, please give this podcast five-star rating or review it online. Or if you think of it, please recommend it to somebody else. And thank you so much for visiting and listening to The Boring is a Swear Word podcast. And my...